The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. If you were to ask a hundred random people to list any of the miracles of Jesus that come to mind, I guarantee you walking on water is going to make the top five responses, if not the top three. It's a miracle that just stands out from the other miracles. There are 37 recorded miracles of Jesus that are found in the Gospels. And 27 of those miracles, a full 73%, are related to health. And that is either to physical healing from sickness and death or spiritual healing from demons. You have three miracles that involve catching fish. And there's also three miracles that involve food or wine. There's one miracle of Jesus casting demons into a herd of pigs. And then there's three miracles that show his power over nature, calming the storm, cursing the fig tree, and walking on water. Two of those three are found in our story this morning. Jesus walks on the water in the midst of a storm, and then he calms the storm once he gets into the boat. It is a moment that is rich in symbolism and rich in lessons and heavy. I do mean heavy on the awe and wonder scale. It's a story in which it was so shocking that the disciples are said, according to the gospel account, that they were utterly astonished, and immediately they began to worship Jesus as Son of God. Now, bear in mind, it's not the first time they saw him do a miracle. Also, it's not even the first time they saw him calm a storm while they're in a boat in the middle of the sea. He's already done that over in Matthew chapter 8. The difference on this is that it is the first and only recorded time that they see Jesus walking on water. And watching him do the impossible and then watching the storm cease once he got into the boat was a powerful display of his ability over nature and his power as the Son of God. So there's something about this story that just compels people to begin to listen. And a part of that is our natural curiosity. I mean, Jesus walking on water kind of stirs natural curiosity. There's also another part of that, and that is a personal connection piece. People connect with the story. So figuratively, we can connect with the idea of going through a storm in our life. We get that. Emotionally, we can connect with the disciples on being tired and being afraid and being overwhelmed and feeling like they're being tossed around by the issues of life. We can connect to that. And spiritually, we connect with the idea of God being so sovereign over creation that he walks on the very waters that he made, that he, he silences the storms that he controls, and he effortlessly steps on the very thing that terrifies us. It's one of those stories you walk away and you say, that's my Jesus. I mean, it's just, there's a, a boldness, there's a comfort, there's a, a holy boldness that comes when you look at that and you look at your situation and you think to yourself, regardless of what I'm going through, water walking Jesus can handle it. it it's that good of a story. But there's also a danger that's here. We can get so excited about the storm and so excited about walking on water and this personal connection that we actually miss the way it's connected to the other pieces that are all around it. This story is like scene three out of four in a much bigger movie. 
And in fact, you need to actually understand the other scenes for this one to take on the full significance that it's intended for us to walk away with. So this morning, and then again in two weeks from now, because next week we are going to pause our series for our 14-year anniversary, but on these next couple of weeks, I'm going to go through and I want to share the whole movie with you. I want you to see how the pieces begin to fit together. I want you to look at this narrative in a brand new way because there are lessons that God wants to teach in this that if we don't see the bigger picture, we miss the smaller lessons along the way. So there is a lot to cover on this. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter number 6. John's Gospel, chapter number 6. I want you to hold that as a reference this morning. I'm not going to read the text in advance. I'm actually going to be kind of working our way through, and I will refer to it, but I want you to actually have your Bibles open on that. I am speaking this morning and over a couple of weeks from now on the subject of lessons in the storm. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that you would give us incredible insight into your word. May there be clarity in the way you've lined these stories up and the lessons that you're teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I said a moment ago that Jesus walking on water and calming the storm is kind of like scene three out of four in a much bigger movie. And the gospel writers link the stories together because they're intended to share a much bigger picture. So in your notes, you'll notice that I put four scenes. In fact, each of these scenes, I also put all the references with it so that you would be able to go back and refer to these along the way. So scene number one is the disciples going on mission and then reporting back when they return. Scene number two is Jesus feeding 5,000 men with a child's lunch. Scene number three is Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. And scene number four that we get to in several weeks is going to be Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. So the gospel writers keep these stories connected together because the events of one are illustrated in the lessons of the next one. In other words, there's something that began in scene number one that they didn't learn the lesson and it's brought up again in scene number two that they didn't learn the lesson that's brought up again in scene number three. They're not learning the lesson, and he brings it back up in scene number four. So you have to keep the four stories together to get the bigger picture. And together, they provide incredible context, and they help us see the bigger themes as well as the deep, deep lessons that he's wanting to share about life. So this morning, I am going to share the first three scenes, but I want to do this from all of the different gospel writers' accounts. So if you do not see what I'm talking about this morning in John chapter 6, the reason is it's recorded by one of the other gospel writers, and I've put those references in your notes so that you could go back and see those for yourselves. So scene number one, it is the disciples going on mission and reporting back when they returned. How they were sent out and what they reported when they returned is what sets the ball in motion for the next several stories. When they were sent out, Jesus sent them in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits, gave them the ability to heal the sick, and he gave them their message that they were to preach, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is the one who gave them all of those things. But Jesus was also very clear that they were to take nothing for their journey except a staff. 
They were not to take money. They were not to take bread. They were not to take a bag. They weren't even supposed to take two changes of clothes. So from the very beginning, as Jesus is sending his disciples out, he is building in God dependence and faith. They had to trust him to accomplish the mission that he set them out to accomplish. Upon arriving in a new place, they would enter a person's house and they were to stay in that house until they left to go to another city. And he said, if someone does not receive you or if they don't receive your message, then you were to shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against that group and you're to move on to the next place. Now, Mark tells us that whenever they came back from their mission, they had preached that people should repent. They did that. They had also cast out demons because Jesus gave them the power and the authority to do that. And they had also healed people who were sick. All of those things Jesus gave them the ability to do. But then Mark adds this little caveat. He says, there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They're incredibly busy. The next thing that we find is they come back to Jesus and they tell Jesus everything that they did and how busy they were. And here's Jesus' statements. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Scene one now comes to an end. Here's scene number two. Jesus feeding 5,000 men with a child's lunch. Now, we're not going to go over this extensively because for the last two weeks, we've actually gone through this very extensively. But here's the high points. Instead of finding that nice, secluded place to rest, they go from one busy situation right into another busy situation. Because it says that as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee by boat, the crowd saw them, ran around the fringe of the Sea of Galilee so that the crowd was waiting for them on the other side. When they arrived, the Bible says Jesus had compassion for the people. That's going to be key in a moment. He had compassion for the people. So even though he was tired, like the disciples, he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. So he begins to heal them, and he taught them. And whenever they were hungry and tired, he fed them. Now, from the disciples' perspective, instead of having that same compassion, when they saw the tired people, they said, Jesus, send them away. Okay, there's a difference in how Jesus saw them versus how the disciples saw them. Jesus was focused on the people. The disciples were focused on themselves. They're like, it's time to rest. We don't have any more time for this. Jesus, just tell them to go away. Wasn't that the point? We were coming over here in order to find a nice secluded place to rest a while. So as he's basically saying, no, let's feed them. They're like, nah, just send the people away. So Jesus says, all right. I'll take care of this. And he feeds the crowd with a kid's lunch. And when the people had been fed and satisfied, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And they wanted to make him king by force. At that point, there are three things that happen in rapid succession. First, Jesus immediately made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. The verb that was translated there, he made, it means to compel or to force someone to do what they don't want to do. They wanted to stay. He was like, no, you need to get in the boat and leave. Second, he dismissed the crowd, thwarting any attempt that they might have to take him by force and make him king. And third, he goes up onto the mountains to pray alone. Scene two now comes to an end. 
Here's scene three. This is our new information that we get into for this morning. Jesus walking on water and calming the storm. It is very likely the disciples were extremely excited about the crowd's response. They were excited because they had been taught by Jesus in Matthew 6.10 that they were to pray for God's kingdom to come. And now the people are saying, we want to make him king. So in their mind, they're connecting these things, thinking, wonderful, the answer to prayer has come. He is going to be king. Our rabbi is getting the respect that he is due. We're going to reign by his side. So they're excited about this, but that's not the kingdom that Jesus was talking about. So he immediately breaks up the meeting. Knowing the crowd's selfish desires and knowing the disciples' misguided enthusiasm, Jesus removes the disciples from the situation completely. They probably had no earthly idea why they got sent away, but they obeyed anyway. So Mark tells us that they initially were going to be meeting Jesus in Bethsaida. That's close to where the thousands were fed. In fact, it seems as though that was a prearranged meeting spot where Jesus was going to meet them in Bethsaida, and then from there, they were going to travel on to the land of Capernaum and Gennesaret together as a group. So I want you to look in your Bibles, verses 16 and 17 in the Gospel of John. Here's what it says, chapter 6. Now when evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. They waited in Bethsaida until it was dark, but when he didn't show up, they reluctantly get in the boat, and they say, we're going to start without him. So as they're sailing now towards Capernaum, the disciples are caught in a storm. Look at what it says in verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Matthew tells us that it blew the disciples' boat off course to the fact that it says they were now a long distance from the land. Mark chimes in and he says that they're now in the middle of the sea. So basically from Bethsaida going down to Capernaum, they would have been skirting along the northwest shoreline. It's kind of not like from one side of the sea to the other. It's from this part of the sea down to that side of the sea. So they're trying to skirt along the edge. The wind comes up, and it's blowing them out now into the Sea of Galilee. Here's where knowing a little bit about the geography helps us understand what they're dealing with. As the sun sets on the Sea of Galilee... The cooler air from the west rushes down over the hillsides and creates white caps on the water itself. So basically, as the disciples are now rowing towards Capernaum from Bethsaida, they're going into the wind. So the wind is coming against them. They're rowing against the wind, making little progress. And it says in Matthew that they are now being battered by the waves. And according to Mark, they are straining at the oars. Instead of them being able to reach that western shore where they're trying to get to, they keep getting pushed further and further out to sea. The time in which they began this journey would have been at evening, based on chapter 6, verse 16. Evening would have been anywhere from 6 to 9 p.m. At the time in which they saw Jesus walking to them on the water, it was at the fourth watch of the night. That would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So at a minimum, they were rowing for six hours. At a maximum, it would have been upwards of 12 hours. And during that period of time, they had made little progress. In fact, they kept getting pushed out to sea. Meanwhile, Jesus is on the mountain by himself praying. 
He's not freaking out. He's not nervously waiting or even blissfully unaware. According to what we find in Matthew, it says he saw them straining at the oars. He's up on the mountain. He's got his eye on the situation. And in his infinite wisdom, he waits until the exact right time. By the way, omnipotence is never in a hurry. When you're God, you have no reason to rush. So keep in mind the scene. That is, it's dark. The wind is swirling. There's spray coming off of the waters. The sea is rough. The disciples see this ghost-like figure walking on top of the water towards them, and they didn't recognize at first that it's Jesus. Now, remember, upwards of seven of these disciples would have been fishermen by trade. So to be out on the water at night, to be in a storm on the water, that's like par for the course if you're a fisherman. But also remember, fishermen are some of the most superstitious people on the planet. So just get this picture. They're on the sea. It's late at night. They're in the middle of a storm. They're weary from rowing. They've now been pushed out to sea. They're unable to make it back to safety. They haven't slept all night. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, they look up and there's this ghost-like figure walking on the water to come towards them. It is no wonder that it says in Matthew chapter 14, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. I mean, literally, you throw a clown in that boat and a couple of spiders, this is the scariest story ever told in the Bible right here. I mean, every bit of this is like, it's frightening. I'm reading, it's like, I'm scared for them whenever I see the situation they're in. But there is this small, obscure moment in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 48, when it says this. He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Hold on just a moment. Why was he going to pass by them? Jesus just out for a stroll? Is he, is he mad? I mean, his disciples are in a bind. I mean, they're terrified. They're, they're weary. They're, they're tired. And it says he came to them on the water, and he was intending to pass by them. I'll tell you why in just a moment. So when they cried out, Jesus said, take courage at his eye. Do not be afraid. They recognized his voice. They knew that it was Jesus, and they were willing to receive him into the boat. Peter on his side was not willing to wait. So Peter basically says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter gets out of the boat, starts walking on the water. He sees the wind. He gets terrified. He begins to sink. And it says, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus and Peter, they now step into the boat, and as they do, the storm ceases. Matthew 14, says, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. It is a great moment. Like, it moved them to worship. You're like, ah, that's exactly what is supposed to happen. But then once again, here comes Mark with the wild card statement. He says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay. He's connecting it back over to what they just went through. He's saying, 
They didn't learn anything on the the feeding of the 5,000. He's saying there's a heart issue at stake. Their hearts had been hardened. It's only now when you see the full story that the lessons begin to come out. So I'm only going to give you two of these today. These are not in any particular order, but man, I'm so excited. Here's the first one. The disciples' fears were calmed when they heard Jesus' voice. Their fears were calmed when they heard Jesus' voice. Bear in mind, they did not recognize his figure. They did not recognize his clothes. They did not recognize his walk. But when they heard his voice, they knew it was Jesus and they knew it was going to be okay. Jesus said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Do you know Jesus knows exactly what you need to hear and exactly when you need to hear it? And if that means he has to walk on water to get you the message, he's willing to do it to share with you, nothing can separate you from him. It's a moment in which if you let this truth run past you, you're going to miss a big idea. As Christians, it's easy for us to think when you're in the storm, God, if you do something, then I'll be okay. God, I need to see you do something. God, I need you to act. I need you to move the mountains. I need you to silence the storms. God, show me something. But that is a short view of the bigger picture. God has already given us his word, and his word contains his promises, and his promises are based on his character. For Christians, our prayer is not, God, if you do something, then I'll be okay. As Christians, our prayer is, God, I am okay because your word has declared it to be true. My life is not hinging on what you will do. It's based on what you have done. It doesn't matter whether or not I am afraid of the storm I see because inside I'm holding on to the promise you've already gave. You've given me promises. You said you would never leave me or forsake me. You said your grace is sufficient for me. You said you were interceding for me. You said nothing could separate me from you. So Lord, even if I can't see your next step, that's okay because I'm holding on to your last promise. They didn't recognize him by what they saw. They recognized him by what they heard. They knew his voice. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I'll occasionally have people tell me, God doesn't speak to me. I believe that is incorrect. The issue is not whether or not God is speaking. The issue is whether or not we're too busy to listen to what he's saying. God has already spoken to us through his word, and he continues to speak wisdom and direction and encouragement into our lives through his spirit. Jesus would regularly make this statement. It's one that we often cross over. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the question is, do you have ears to hear? Are you putting yourself in a place you can hear from him as he begins to speak? There are believers who continue to walk in fear because they're trying to see God's next step instead of listening to God's previous promise. The question is, do you have ears to hear? Here's the second one. The storms, pressures of life, reveal our hearts. Maybe you've heard it said before, a crisis doesn't make a hero, it reveals a hero. Who you are under pressure is who you are. 
if you're calm under pressure, you're a calm person. If you're gracious under pressure, you're a gracious person. If you're a jerk under pressure, are you, are you smelling what we're stepping in here? Who you are under pressure is who you are. So I want you to see this in the story. When the disciples were sent out on their mission, scene one, they were instructed to take nothing with them except their staff. Instead of relying on what they had, they were supposed to trust in the one who sent them. Jesus is the one who gave them divine enablement. He gave them his authority and his healing and his message. As a result of that, they cast out demons, they healed the sick, they preached the gospel of the kingdom. When they came back, they began to talk about everything they did. They talked about how busy they were. Now remember, Jesus is the one who gave them that. So, just, just a thought, when you're too busy doing ministry that you start to miss people, something is out of balance. When you're more enamored with what you did than who sent you, something is out of balance. When you forget that you were sent with nothing and God sustained you all along the way, something is not working. You need to sit down and you need to regroup. That's exactly where they rolled into scene number two. In scene number two, the people, the crowds were hungry and the disciples said, send them away. Jesus had compassion. They didn't have compassion when they reported back everything that they had done, they missed the fact that it was Jesus who gave them the ability to do it to begin with. When they stalled out for a lack of resources, they missed the fact that they were originally sent with nothing and Jesus gave them everything they needed all along the way. So fast forward now to the story of them being in the storm. That's now scene three. Now the tables have been turned on them. The disciples are scared. The disciples are afraid. The disciples are tired. The disciples are desperate. And Mark 6, 48 says, he came to them on the sea and he intended to pass by them. Why did he intend to pass by them? He tells you in the next verse, verse 52, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. It was an issue of the heart. What were they supposed to gain from this? Compassion, love for people, Trust that Jesus can do the impossible. Dying to self so that he could serve others. Recognizing that Jesus is the one who did the work. There's multiple lessons they were supposed to learn. When the people were desperate and in need the day before, they wanted to be by themselves and just say, just send them away. Now Jesus comes strolling to them on the water intending to pass by almost as if to say, hey guys, how does it feel when no one cares about you? Jesus is so good. I, I mean, it's kind of like, ooh, he did that to them. He did. I mean, it, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God doesn't just want people to do his bidding. He wants his people to have his heart. He wants people to love what he loves and hate what he hates and to be broken over the things that break him. He could have a monkey do the work. He wants his disciples to have his heart. So here's a question. You're not going to like it. What lesson is God trying to teach you in your storm? What set of circumstances keep reoccurring over and over and over in your life? It's one of those situations where 
You keep having themes that God brings up. Maybe it's a theme of trust or a theme of money or a theme of lying or pride or or a critical spirit. Whatever it is, the storms of life will reveal our hearts. They bring to the surface things that we might not want to see brought to the surface. So what's your storm saying about your heart? I just want you to sit with that one for a week or so. What's your storm saying about your heart? Now, as I asked that question, I also asked it of myself. And through some storms I've been going through recently, here's what God revealed about my heart. Selfishness, pride, lack of dependence, lack of prayer. You know, when God reveals those things to you in private, it's embarrassing enough. But if you keep living without listening to the warning, he begins to reveal those in public, and it's far more devastating on the other side. When you look at the story, what they were to learn in scene one, they didn't pick up. He tried to bring it back up in scene two, they didn't pick it up. He now brings it back up in scene three. And even then he says, their hearts had been hardened. They didn't learn anything from the last time I taught them the lesson. Do you know why that gives me encouragement? Because there's a lot of lessons I don't pick up the first time. Or the second, or the third, or the fourth. So here's the good thing. You have a Jesus who won't let you go, and he just keeps coming after you, teaching the lesson again and again and again. And then one day, all of a sudden, the lights come on. You're like, ah, that's what he's been saying the whole time. Man, we have a God who loves us so much, he continues to pursue us even when we mess up. And he has such a plan for our lives. He's not going to let us go from the problem until it comes full circle around and we're able to see it from his perspective and address it with his power. I can't wait for a couple weeks. I got about 10 more lessons out of this story I'm going to be sharing. It's going to be so exciting. I just got to hold it together between now and then. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, just for the story, just for the way all the pieces connect together, I pray, Lord, that you would Enable us not to just rush through life and miss these pieces. But God, may we take the time to sit in the moment and to reflect deeply, God, deeply upon what it is that you're speaking into our life. Lord, we recognize that a lot of times we don't have ears to hear the first, second, third, fourth time you're teaching the same lesson. But God, I thank you for the fact that the storms and the pressures of life reveal our heart. Thank you, God, for the fact we can hold on to a promise like that. And we can see where you're working and how you're trying to get our attention. So, God, may we continue to pursue you, being more fully aware of what you're teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.